All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews chapter number 9, we're going to look here beginning in verse number 24. Uh, our primary focus is going to be verse 27 and also uh, we'll look just briefly at a verse in James chapter 4 and verse 14 uh, as we get started this morning. Uh, and so this is a uh, commemorative week this week in our country. We'll remember, of course, and celebrate Labor Day tomorrow. A lot of folks will have uh, the day off from work, be able to spend time with family and barbecues and all of those types of things that we typically do in our American fashion. We celebrate holidays. Uh, it symbolizes for me and uh, for most of us, I think, that even though it doesn't feel like fall out there, it, it's, it's, it's in our minds falls here. Uh, I love the fall. Uh, my least favorite season of the year is summer, uh, and so whenever there's any hope or hint of it going away, I'm I'm set. I mean, it's it's a, praise the Lord, uh, better weather is on the way, uh, and so you it's just it's a good day. And so my wife already decorated for fall, uh, and so she got I brought the bins down and the the orangey and brown leaves and all those kind of things came out and the. Uh, the correct scented candles from Bath and Body Works came out, and so uh, she's already been talking about Miss Tamika giving her the warning and the heads up for December whenever they have their big sale so she can stock up for another year. Uh, and so it's just the beginning of fall, but also in my mind, it's kind of the beginning of holiday season, and we've got extra holidays, like Canadian Thanksgiving used to never be a thing in our family, right? So uh, just like yours, it's not a thing, but whenever your sons marry sisters that are from Canada, then it suddenly it becomes a thing. So that's an extra thing in October, and uh, so we get to do Thanksgiving twice, and so uh, which means that I have to run a whole lot more, and so, or I'll get too big, and so uh, it's an ever-going battle, and so we look at the fall, and the, t the times are changing and things are coming. But this year in particular, on this week in particular, we're going to see a lot of images uh, from 2001. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that just a little bit this morning, uh, not in relation to current events uh, so much. And so I have some pretty strong feelings about that. It'd probably be better for me to not get on. Um, and so uh, we looked this morning at Hebrews chapter 9, uh, in verse number 24, and the Bible says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to the appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin. Unto salvation in James chapter 4 and verse number 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. I want to speak this morning on this thought, our certain moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our, our appointment. Thank you for the time together this morning. Thank you for, uh, Lord, the opportunity to open your word. May our hearts be open. May we reflect. May we be, Lord, mindful and even inspired about the judgment that's to come. In Jesus' name, amen. This week on the television, 
on many stations, especially as you get closer to the weekend, you're going to see images of the Twin Towers burning. There's going to be much said, and rightfully so, about September 11th, 2001. 20 years ago. I remember that day, as many of you do, vividly. 20 years removed, there are several people in the auditorium this morning that have no recollection of the, other than what they've seen on TV or read in a book. I was 34 years old. I was the director of a boys' home in East Tennessee. I was a youth pastor of a Baptist church in East Tennessee. And I sat that day in my office, and my phone rang, and my mom called and said, you need to watch the news, a plane hit the World Trade Center. I didn't think too much of it. I, my first thought was just a little private plane, like a little Cessna, like a little two or three seat plane. And I thought, you know, something weird must have happened. But the last thing in my mind was that something like a plane hitting a building of such magnitude could cause such destruction. Whenever I got the call and I thought about it for a minute, I was pretty busy. I was balancing uh, the books, I think, for the ministry there. And I was, had things set to do with the boys that were in the home there following. And they were in school. And then I had to interact. And I think we had chapel that day. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm just like, you know, well, I, you know, when I get time, I'll go check it out. So right now I was just focused on what I had to do for the day. And then a little while later, she called again and said that another one hit. Now I have my attention. So I got up from my desk and I went home. And just Our house was right across the road there from where my office was. And I turned the TV on and sat, as many of you did, for hours, horrified at what we saw. You know, there are a lot of things that happened that day that you'll see that will be, be replayed over and over again this week. But there are some images that they'll talk about briefly but not really focus on or they'll scrub the images from what's shown. What was taking place was so horrific that they don't even want to really show it in great detail. But I remember watching that day. I remember being somewhat shocked that there were only 3,000 dead, just slightly under. When I looked at those buildings and listened to the reports that 50,000 people worked in each building, can you imagine if those planes would have hit just an hour later? And as I watched the smoke burning, as you watched the smoke burning, and they kind of begin to figure out where the planes came from, where they were headed, <clears throat> gave them an idea of how much fuel the planes were carrying. Those planes impacting those buildings at over 500 miles an hour. In the 80th to 90 floors of probably about 105 to 10 floors. I can't remember exactly how many floors, but I do remember as an 18-year-old standing on top of one of those buildings and looking out across the skyline and the scenery from the observation deck of one of the towers as a high school senior. I kind of put myself back there in that moment and watched as they began to focus on things falling from the top of the building. 
that's what's really scrubbed from the images that we see today. And as I watched those things falling, you thought debris, things are burning. The last thing that really entered into my mind as I watched is that it was people. People that were jumping. That were making a conscious decision. Because it was their best option. They weren't below the flames. They were above them. Their floor was not burning. But the jet fuel that was burning at 3,000 plus degrees below them with rising heat and smoke was overwhelming them. You could see them standing on the edge where windows once were. Some of them tried to, no doubt, find a way down. But the stairwells were engulfed. There was just nowhere to go. There was no hope of rescue. There was no avoiding their fate. And on that morning, they realized that death is no respecter of persons. They got up that morning like we got up this morning, expecting it to be a normal day. We got up with a routine, with a plan. We have a schedule. Our Sunday schedule usually starts relatively early. It allows us to have time to just sit and have coffee together and kind of think about through and plan what's going to happen that day. Time to prepare to get ready. Time to review. Lessons to be taught. Sermons to be preached. Time to make the drive and allow for unexpected problems in the traffic. Plans for lunch. For the afternoon. To come back for a service this evening. And after. There's no expectation in my heart this morning. That when I end today. That it will end like every other Sunday. In the comfort of my own home. With my head resting. Nestled softly in my pillow. They began September 11th. 2001 the same way. Death chose them that day. Death comes for us all. We don't choose it. We don't plan it. It chooses us. Sometimes it comes tragically, suddenly. Sometimes it comes at the end of a long fight with disease. Whenever it comes, it's always devastating. It's always difficult for those that love us. On September 11th, approximately 200 people found themselves above the fire line. 200 people jumped from the flames and the smoke and the heat. Some of them jumped alone. Some of them jumped holding hands. Some of them in pairs or small groups. Some with curtains or tablecloths to try to use as a parachute only to have the wind rip it from their hands as they fell. Some screamed. Some were silent. 
They fell for 10 seconds. If I were to step off the building, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005, 1,006, 1,007, 1,008, 1,009, 1,010. My life is over. They fell and struck the ground at just under 150 miles per hour. Not fast enough to cause unconsciousness, but fast enough to ensure instant death upon impact. There were people standing at the bottom of the building. I remember seeing the video footage. And they may briefly show it this week in some clips, but not in the way that they did on that day. Were people filming with their phones and with their camcorders, looking up and realizing that it was people that were falling. And the horror in their voice when they realized that these people jumped. Recognizing what they were experiencing. If there's anything that was in doubt that day before about mortality, about the fragility of our lives, it was brought back into focus on that morning. I still watched it burn and I heard him begin to talk about the buildings collapsing and in my mind that just didn't make any sense. Surely things will burn out, it's mostly steel. How in my mind it didn't just register that it should have, I worked in a steel mill for a while making valves and the melting point of steel is around that temperature. That even if the upper floors gave way, how could it bring down the whole structure? And then one of them collapsed. And they began to try to discern how many people were in the building, how many they could get out, and then the other collapsed. People in the planes were dead. The people in the buildings were dead. Firefighters caught in the stairwell. Law enforcement just trying to help people, trying to save lives, trying to make a difference. They were not spared regardless of their social standing, the size of their bank account, their faith, their religious beliefs, their eternal status as a child of God or a child of this world. They were caught in a moment when there was no longer an opportunity to make a decision about where they'd spend eternity. In our text this morning, we see Jesus as that final payment for our sin. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but unto heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In the Old Testament and up until this time, until the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, then the tabernacle, and then the temples that followed. Once a year, the high priest would have to go into the temple, into the holy place, through the holy place, into the holy of holies, 
and make an atonement offering for sin and sprinkle the blood of an innocent animal that God would receive and accept as a temporary payment for their sin to make an atonement uh, until a final atonement was made by the one worthy lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not have to enter into that structure. He went boldly into heaven itself. In the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant, and on the Ark of the top of the Ark of the Covenant were two uh, seraphim with their, with their wings swept back, or cherubim with their wings swept back, and the angels depicted there. And the priest would go in and sprinkle it, and the glory of God would come upon it, and it symbolized the forgiveness of God and the presence of God in their midst and uh, it was a promise of what was to come in the Lord Jesus Christ but that was a symbol of their sin being made atonement for and God coming there to accept and to receive that sacrifice Jesus didn't have to go there he had access to the father he went with his blood to God and he offered it to pay our sin debt and it says in verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. He didn't have to continually suffer. There are some faiths that teach that uh, when you participate in the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Supper or Lord's Table or the others call communion, uh, that the, the wafer literally becomes the flesh of Christ and the, uh, the grape juice, the fruit of the vine literally becomes the blood and that constitutes the perpetual constant suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sin. He does not, not that is not what happens. It is commemorative. He died once for all. Amen. He does not perpetually suffer. He says clearly, nor yet that he should offer himself often. He only had to make the offering once. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world in verse 26. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So pastor, that was 2,000 years ago. That's not the end of the world. Well, in light of eternity, it's close enough. He made an end of sin. So the pastor's sin still runs, but he has conquered it. Amen. And he will put an end to it. But it, we in this life are looking here and seeing the sacrifice that he made. And it, then he says, it is appointed unto men once to die. We're all have, we have a certain appointment with death this morning. We have a certain appointment with our judge. And what that judge looks like and what that judgment looks like depends upon not what Jesus has done alone, but what we've done with him. Have I accepted his forgiveness? Have I become his child or am I rejecting him? As a Christian, do I live my life for me or do I live my life for him? Am I honoring myself or am I honoring my Savior? And so when we look this morning, we're going to consider uh, these judgments and our certain appointment with the judge. The good news this morning is if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you're not living a victorious Christian life and you're struggling with sin, I would say this, that you stand before, we will stand before a judge that has done everything possible to demonstrate for us his compassion and his love and a remedy for that sin. We stand before a judge that wants to forgive. We stand before a judge that draws us to forgiveness. We stand before a judge not that wants to exercise the letter of the law, but wants to show mercy. Yeah, the problem is 
is that that decision is made for him by us in this life. I have all the power this morning to, to reconcile myself with God. I have all of the ability, I have all of the initiative. When the Spirit of God speaks to me, when God reveals himself to me, I have the one, I'm the one that has the ability to make the decision to respond to him and to come before him and say, yes, forgive my sin. Yes, reconcile me to yourself. And in that instance, I receive forgiveness. I receive, uh, I receive reconciliation. I receive a restoration of fellowship with my Father in heaven. That, that's that's for me to choose when the Spirit of God speaks to me. But when that faithful moment comes and my life ends, it's out of the judge's hands. It's pretty clear in the scripture that when we stand in judgment, especially the judgment of the lost, the great white throne, that there are going to be many tears shed. In my heart and my mind, I believe that the person that will shed the most tears will be the Lord. No one loves like he loves. No one sacrifices like he sacrificed. And above all others, he will recognize as every person is cast into the eternal, the eternal lake of fire that has rejected him in this life. That they're going there because the law demands it. But they didn't have to. Because the price had already been paid. It had already been made available to them. And we consider these judgments this morning. The first is that, the judgment of the unsaved. We don't have time to look at very many passages. I don't want to get uh, caught up in uh, trying to run every single reference that there is to this, but I do want to point out uh, the obvious in Luke chapter 16 and, uh, and verses 19 through 31, there's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you have to understand this morning, oftentimes pastors get up and they talk about somebody spending eternity in hell. And biblically, that's just not true. Hell is a temporary place. It's not a permanent place. The lake of fire is eternal. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. When you understand and you study the scripture, you understand in the Old Testament, uh, there was the word Sheol in the Hebrew that was translated to place of the dead. And in, uh, and the Greek of the New Testament, that place is Hades. And it is simply that. It is the place of the dead. It is a place where all the dead were held until the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, at which place uh, he went and descended uh, and he took those out into the presence of God uh, who were saved after his resurrection or in, in that point in time of his that process of death burial and resurrection we see that demonstrated here in Luke chapter number 16 I realized this morning that there are some uh, that would stand and say oh pastor that's just a parable but parables by definition do not use proper names that makes this a literal story Jesus is not speaking here in a parable by the definition of a parable, he is speaking specifically about a particular individual in Lazarus 
and then in this rich man. And we see the rich man, uh, and it says, and it came to pass in verse 22 that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So understand this morning, there's a distinction between the, where we would go, a lost person would go now and suffer in hell as to where they'll spend eternity at, after the final white throne judgment. They're both places of torment, but one is awaiting the final end of the world and final judgment, in which case Satan even will be cast into the hottest parts and the most terrible parts of that lake of fire. What we see here, what we see is this rich man who had everything that money could buy in this life is now destitute. He says, send Lazarus, just let him dip the tip of his finger in the water. There was a great gulf of water that separated them that he clearly could see across. And uh, he could see those that were being comforted and those that were being loved in Abraham's bosom. It was a place of comfort uh, for those that uh, had put their faith in Messiah. Uh, and, and he says, longing for some relief from this suffering. And then when he realizes and it's made clear by Abraham, he cannot come. Then he said, then send them back to tell my loved ones. And he says, the law and the prophets they've had, if they won't believe them, then they're not going to believe someone even if he came back from the dead. What we choose in this life is binding for eternity. And we have opportunity after opportunity. So what is the judgment of the unsaved? What is that, uh, that judgment that comes to those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, uh, that lock him away, <coughs> excuse me, in Revelation chapter 21, and verse number 8, as he describes it, he says, But the fearful, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So, well, Pastor, well, you know, I've got sin in my life, but I'm not a whoremonger. I've got sin in my life, but, uh, but I, I'm, not, I'm not a murderer. Are you fearful? Are we unbelieving? Have we ever told a lie? If it only takes one lie or one murder to be a murderer. I mean, if I were to come down and say, Hey, Brother Lynn, uh, you killed Miss Jan. If I asked someone to describe what Brother Lynn is, everyone would say a murderer. The worst type, he killed his wife. But yet we don't want to see ourselves as a liar because we've told one lie. That's good. The distinction that the Lord is making here is that it's not about what we do. He's making the point. It is impossible for man to be righteous on his own. Amen. It is not, we are not capable of living righteously and standing before God and being allowed access into heaven. It is an impossibility. 
That's his point. The only way that it's possible is if we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from our sin and repentance and seek his forgiveness and receive his blood that he offered to God to make an atonement for our sin so that his righteous is imputed or put upon our account so that when God sees us at this judgment, he does not see me in my sin, he sees Jesus in his righteousness. And if I do not believe that this morning, then there is only one place, there is only one decision that can be made. God will stand there with tears, I believe, in his eyes, brokenhearted and devastated that he made everything possible for me to be reconciled and I rejected him and now it's time to pass judgment and he is bound by his character and by his word to pronounce sentence. And it's forever. The judgment of the unsaved will result in an eternity without Christ. Once my eyes closed in death, once I step off of that building and I fall those fateful 10 seconds and impact the ground, there's no more opportunity to make a decision. And I enter an eternity, secondly, without hope. I don't know, there are a lot of times that we talk about and try to describe hell and, and the lake of fire and eternal suffering and we do so trying to think about what, how can I put this into the context that will help us to just, it will never do it justice but to, uh, to get experience and we'll, we'll come up with things like, well what's the worst part about it? The Bible describes it in different places. The place where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus described it that way on more than one occasion. It's a place of total darkness. There is no light. Jesus is the light. If you remove the light, you have darkness. You don't believe that? Wait till the darkest of nights. Wait until there's a great storm and go into, the, into your closet and turn all the lights out in your house, all the lights out outside and get in the closet with no exterior light. Shut it off and see if you could even see your hand in front of your face. Why? Because there's no light. When the light is removed, there's darkness. And if there's one thing that's certain and true about hell is that there will be no light there. Jesus is the light. He will not be there. He descended into death and hell and he rose victorious, leading captivity, captivity captive with the keys in his hand. That was Sheol. That was Hades. That's where Lazarus was. When the lake of fire is filled and whenever the lid is sealed, it will never again be opened for all of eternity. It is an eternity at that point without hope. My friends, the good news this morning is if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're here this morning and you wonder, and you could even say it, I wouldn't argue the point. Hey, I'm a good person, Pastor. The hell will be filled. The lake of fire will be filled with good people because it's not about whether you're good or bad or sinful or unsinful because we're all sinful. Well, my, his sin's worse than mine. That doesn't matter in relation to where I'm going to spend eternity. What matters is, did I recognize myself a sinner? Did I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of his blood that he offered on my behalf? And, and was I born into his family whenever that transaction was made? Because if I did, then I'm his child and I have nothing to fear of this judgment. I'll be there shedding tears. But I will not be judged, at least not condemned. 
when we look and we understand that this is an eternity without Christ, which makes it an eternity without hope. And if I lose my life tonight, if my life ends tonight without me having made a decision at the moment that my heart stops beating, that my eyes close in death, that I take my last breath and that I enter eternity, my fate is sealed. Hope is gone. What I'm saying is that there are a lot of people that go through a lot of bad things in time and in life and you look out historically uh, at things that we would classify as bad and things that we would classify as horrific and uh, those people that stood up on the top of the Twin Towers on September 11th, 20 years ago, come Saturday, uh, they stood there and they came to the conclusion that there was no hope of escape and they made the decision that they made. What I would say this morning is that it's the judgment of the unsaved, that it is the entrance into an eternity without hope. There will be no hope. It will never end. Then thirdly, that it's an eternity without relief. Whatever God pronounces that judgment to whatever degree of suffering we are sentenced to, there will never be relief. There will be no clemency. There will be no pardon. There will be no parole. There will just be suffering. That's the judgment for those that are not saved. The judgment of those that reject Christ. The judgment of those that say, Jesus, I don't need you. The second judgment that we see is the judgment of the righteous. Everyone will be judged. And as it is appointed unto men once to die and after this, the judgment will all be judged as according to whether or not we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior or not. But as a Christian, I will be judged based upon my actions and my works. And I believe more importantly than what my actual works were is my motive behind those works. Because I do believe there are going to be a lot of people that are going to have a long list of things that they did that man would look at and say that was great things to do. Those were good works, but they did them with a self-serving, selfish, uh, or compromised motive and that rendered the, the good deed meaningless. Do we do what we do for self or for the Savior? Romans chapter 14 and verse number 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking here to Christians. He's speaking to those that have trusted Christ as Savior. He's no longer at this point, he's not speaking to those uh, that do not know Jesus as their Savior, but those that know him. And he says, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in verses 11 through 15, he says, For another foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And if a man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. And the point is this, that there is a judgment of the righteous. And there is a twofold part of this. First, it is the judgment that's going to lead to the realization that it is an eternity of peace. If I trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, once judgments take place, I will be at peace. But it's also the truth of 
that there are going to be rewards for what I do as a child of God. There are going to be rewards that are going to be meted out at this judgment seat of Christ that's going to take place while the earth is being judged in the tribulation uh, to which I'm going to stand before him and I'm going to receive rewards. And they're all going to look beautiful. You know, the thing about packaging is that packaging can disguise whatever you want it to disguise. We're masters of packaging things. Have you ever gotten that, that, that package and you opened it and it was just so disappointing? I remember one year at, at Christmas and, and we were, uh, every year it was just like we would tell the kids, the, the, and, and we meant it, the, unless the Lord answers prayer and does something, then there's not going to be much Christmas. We're trying to downplay their hopes and expectations, right? Because uh, it, it, was, uh, uh, it, it was lean times. And the big thing at the time was uh, the, the little iPods. And so uh, that, that was the, kind of the big thing going around. And so we were, uh, they, they were wanting them desperately and, <coughs> and trying to get them. And so we're out shopping and, uh, and, you know, it just so happened that we, the Lord provided. And so we were able to get it. So we were being creative with our packaging. So we got the boys, I'll, I'll never forget, the, the girls got the, the smaller, less expensive ones, so they were littler, but the boys got uh, the ones that they really wanted, and even the color was like to, to their favorite thing or team, and, and we, we got them, and so we bought different boxes. So we bought a round box, and we bought uh, kind of an octagon-shaped box, and we just bought different shapes, but we got them the same shapes. So they're getting them and we're getting ready to unwrap and so we took it in one box uh, we put in the round box the the iPod and then the other round box we put the headphones and then vice versa for the other kid and so when they're opening it uh, they open it and they get excited but their excitement is kind of mitigated a little bit because in their mind when they opened one box and it was the item, and they open the other box, and it was the earbuds. That means we got to share, <laughs> and that means that we're always going to be fighting over who gets it when. And if you're the younger sibling, that means that you're always going to end up on the short side of that stick. And so there was happiness, but it was really kind of on the down low. And then it came time for them to open the other box and they opened the other box and it became apparent that they both got their own and the boxes went up. It was like graduate hats at graduation. The boxes went up in the air and there was screaming and joy and I think they even got up and ran a couple of laps around the living room. Uh, and so, I mean, they were just excited. Why? Because the packaging didn't truly reflect and reveal what was inside. I believe that's the way the judgment seat of Christ is going to be. That we're going to get rewards waiting for us based upon our actions that are all going to look awesome until they're tried by fire. You see, the rewards that a Christian are going to get are either going to be classified as gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. I've seen some wood that looks like gold. I've seen some things that are flimsy that look expensive. I, you know, when you get there and you understand what he's saying is that your, your reward is going to look awesome 
But what's really in that packaging? And what's in that packaging isn't determined upon the kindness or the generosity or, uh, or, uh, or anything like that from God. It's going to be reflected by what did I do and why did I do it? You know, I can stand up here Sunday after Sunday and preach to you with the wrong motive and the wrong spirit. And if I do that, I fully would expect that when my reward is tried by fire in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, that it's going to be reduced to ash. But pastor, you did a good thing. You spoke the word of God. You told people how to be saved. And uh, you uh, compelled people to try to live a godly life, a holy life, a life pleasing to the Lord. Yeah, but if my motive is to please me or to elevate me and not to elevate and lift up Jesus, it's a broken, it's a compromised motive. It is not a valid motive. I am not worthy of gold, silver, precious stone. We tend to classify these things in our mind as well. Uh, you know, we did this or we did that and we want to equate it with sinful things. Listen, what the, the believer is going to be judged for everything. Sinful things, yes, but thank God it's forgiven in relation to my, my judgment as uh, whether I'll spend eternity in heaven or hell. But I am not eliminated from being judged about what I did and how I did it and why I did it. I will give an account. The Bible says it will give an account for every idle word that we speak. Everything that we say, even in jest, we have to answer to God for. And when we look and we understand here the judgment of the righteous, it is the judgment that will reward us for holy living or not. And when it's tried by fire, our lives will be revealed. How we live and what we do and why we do it matters. It's the judgment of the righteous. Those that would name Christ, those that love Christ, those that try to do uh, the right thing to please their Father in heaven. But oftentimes those people get bad motives. Then thirdly, there's the judgment of the backslider. And all of us backslide at times. All of us uh, struggle with sin at times. Sometimes we make decisions to go away from the Lord and to uh, make bad decisions in that way. But Matthew chapter number 12 uh, talks about it in this sense when we get to verse 33 there in Matthew chapter 12. Either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can you be an evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. What I'm saying here this morning is simply this. That the judgment seat of the backslider, if I purposely as a Christian choose to go away from God, to go against what God has told me is right, to go against what he's put in my heart to do in obedience to him, if I will not accept my responsibility as a son and to, uh, to live a life that pleases him and to follow his will and to do his will for my life, then there are a couple of things that are brought to light here. The first is this, is that there is going to be for me in that judgment the shame of unnecessary failure. I would say this this morning, if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ and you cannot 
be faithful or will not be faithful, if you cannot get victory over particular sin in your life, if you're constantly spiraling out of control in your walk with God, that that is an unnecessary failure. I have no excuse when I stand before God. He has given me every opportunity. He has given me every tool. He has given me everything that is necessary, not only for me to know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, but to, to live my life in a way that honors Him and pleases Him and is used by Him to bring others to Christ and to develop them in their walk with God. I have every opportunity. If my life is a life of failure, it was unnecessary. And I will stand in that judgment in my shame. And then there's the shame of lost opportunity. How many opportunities do we have that are lost this morning? How many opportunities do we waste? How many opportunities do we squander? How many opportunities do we, do we dismiss? Because they'll be inconvenient or they'll be costly or they'll be time consuming. How many opportunities does God put in our path that gives us the opportunity to repent of our sin, to come to him, to trust him, the lost person as our savior, for the backslider to return to the loving care of a father in heaven, uh, as a Christian to live a life that's meaningful and that's impactful upon the culture and the world around us because God's power is settled over us and he's working through us. And we have the opportunity to share and to lead and to live in such a way that others are inspired to give their heart to Christ. That's the life that he's called us to when he saved our soul. I'm saying this morning as we stop at a time when it's just kind of natural in our nation's history to reflect on a national tragedy. When people's fates were sealed in a moment. To be mindful of the fact that our life, just as their life was on that day, is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanisheth away. If you're here this morning, I'm here this morning, I have to realize that <coughs> the frailty of life, I am not guaranteed to make it to the end of the day. There is no promise that I'll be here tomorrow. There is no guarantee that I'll reach my 60th birthday in a few years from now. There's no guarantee that I'll enjoy a long retirement. There's no guarantee that the next time I go to the doctor that he won't give me difficult news. But there is some guarantees on the other side of eternity. There is the guarantee that I'm going to die. There is the guarantee that after I die that I will be judged. There is the guarantee that if I reject Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, that I'll spend an eternity in a lake of fire. There is the guarantee that if I, when I stand before him as a Christian, that he's going to judge my works and my motives, why I did what I did. There is the guarantee that if I choose to stray from him and leave him, that I'm going to be fully aware that my suffering, my shame, my lack of gold, silver, and precious stone is an unnecessary failure because he made it possible for everything that I needed to be available to me.
Listen, this morning, we do not choose the day or the hour, but we do choose our eternal outcome. I don't get to look ahead on the calendar and say, this is the time, the place of my death. Can you imagine how differently our lives would be this morning if we knew that? How different our priorities would be? How different our focus would be? How much more important the things that we do on a daily basis would become the closer that the day drew near? But my friend, the day is drawing closer. If you knew that tomorrow was your final day or if you knew that five years from now was your final day or 10 years from now was your final day or 70 years from now was your final day and you knew the date and the time and the hour, it probably wouldn't affect your life too much until you got close to it. But just as certainly as you knew it, the specific date, the specific hour, the specific moment of your departure from this life into the next is known by God. Just because I don't know it and just because you don't know it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And with every beat of my heart and every breath that I take, I am one moment closer to stand in the presence of my Father in heaven. I'm grateful this morning that because of what I'm told in the Bible and because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on Calvary's cross, that I have absolutely no worries about being separated from God and suffering in a lake of fire. Not because of anything special about me, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But honestly, I'm a little concerned. To have all of my works revealed to me. Pastor, you do a lot of bad things. I try not to do any bad things. But my heart's deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. And sometimes I'm afraid that even the things that I do that are good aren't always done with the best motive. Sometimes we do what we do because we have to. Sometimes we do what we do because we know we should. Sometimes it's just our character that drives us to do the right thing. Everything that I do for the Lord should be because I want to express my love to Him. Some days I'm just not that loving. Some days it's a struggle. And some days I got to deal with Brother George and it's a pleasure. And other days I got to deal with Chad and it's hard. Amen. <laughs> My point this morning is simple. It is appointed unto you. There is a certain appointment that you have with death. And after that, there is a certain judgment that you'll face. No one is exempt. No one is excluded. No one can escape it. Will you stand judged in your sin? 
because you refuse to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Christian, will you stand in your shame because you served yourself instead of serving the Lord? Or will you stand honored by the one that you served? Will I be able to stand before him and have him pronounce that I was a good and faithful servant? can't control when I die but I can control everything that happens afterwards in relation to how he judges me so we conclude this morning and ask you just a couple more questions and we'll be through what have you done with Jesus it's a great song Ron Hamilton wrote what will you do with Jesus what will you do with Jesus what have you done with Jesus? If you've trusted him and you're his child, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But when you stand before him as a Christian, as his child, and you're welcomed into heaven, but you stand in judgment for your actions, for your words, for how you used the salvation that he provided you in this life. Will you stand in shame? Or will you stand in honor? Well done. Well done. I hate to think that one day I'll stand before Jesus and he'll look and then shake his head and say, you made it. Glad you're here. Have a seat. We'll get to you in a moment when I could stand before him and hear him say, hey, Moses, Elijah, look, he's coming. Get the angels ready. Strike up the choir. We have a faithful servant to welcome home. By the way, I don't think nearly as many pastors will receive that welcome as there will be faithful old widow ladies that just gave, prayed, came, loved, worked, invested. We equate position with reward. God doesn't. God knows what he called you to do and what he called me to do. God knows what he prepared you to do, what he equipped you to do, what he equipped me to do. We're not all on the same scale of ability in one area or another. There are things that most of you could do that I could never do. There may be a thing or two that I could do that maybe not too many people could do. But by and large, the most talented people in the church aren't the ones that stand on the platform. Yeah, amen. The most impactful people in the church aren't the ones that stand on the platform. The ones that make the greatest difference in people's lives aren't the ones that stand up and speak. They're the ones that live Jesus real, day to day, moment to moment, loving him and investing in you. 
when those people stand, when those people are welcomed, I just can't help but imagine. If you don't agree with this, that's okay. Don't spoil my vision of heaven. That whenever that humble servant that no one down here recognized or knew enters heaven, that the streets will be lined with the angels and that the choir will be singing and that Jesus will stand up at his throne and say, welcome home, thou good and faithful servant. If you want that kind of a reception in heaven, you can have it depending on what you do with Jesus from this moment forward.